And I hope you got a copy of God's Word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. Uh, We will be looking at a couple verses throughout this chapter, then we'll be closing with the end portion of the text. Um, So if you haven't been here with us, uh, we're we're kind of jumping in in the middle uh, of a movie, but if you've been here, you kind of know that we're just a couple of weeks in to our journey through Luke. Um, We're not going to go verse by verse or even chapter by chapter. Uh, Of course, initially here, we're kind of moving slow, but eventually we'll start, and next week we'll begin uh, jumping in kind of deeper into the text as we approach Easter. Um, But uh, we're just going to let Luke tell us this amazing story. Um, And we want to, and the goal of all this, and and maybe uh, if if you are someone who you've read Luke hundreds of times, you know it better than I know it, right? You better uh, know it better than than most. And and, and you probably have heard so many sermons out of Luke, you could probably preach the sermons yourself, right? Uh, uh, that's great, and I hope that as we study through Luke, we can still look at it through a fresh set of eyes. Um, and maybe if you've never read through any of the Gospels, maybe if this season is kind of all uh, this whole idea of Easter and Jesus is brand new to you, I want to go as close to the ground as we can, and I want to lead us all, no matter where you come from, uh, on this journey, so that we might would see through the eyes of those that originally and initially encountered Jesus and met him in his earthly ministry. So, and we've already kind of began to see uh, that Luke's story is historically rooted. It's heavily sourced. It's undeniably true, the story of Jesus and the church. And, and as we've kind of studied so far, we've seen how Luke thoroughly investigated, how, he, uh, how his account is as good as any history book could ever uh, organize this story to be. So Luke was a friend and a companion of the Apostle Paul. Most of you know that. Um, and it was through Paul that Luke became connected with the Jerusalem church. And he got to meet and talk with the eyewitnesses, the original disciples and friends and family of Jesus. He followed and heard Paul often stand before many authority figures, many courts and kings and politicians uh, who wanted so badly to know more about Jesus, uh, even though the logic of, of the whole movement, you know, kind of seemed completely outlandish, even though the logic it refuted that God could ever become a man, uh, even though that the resurrection seemed implausible, many that Luke and Paul encountered couldn't shake the feeling and the sense that Jesus was indeed alive more than ever and in more than one place at once. Paul and many others that encountered Jesus had seen him with their own eyes and received him into their own heart. And they believed, Luke believed, after meeting these men and women and encountering with them and engaging with them and himself becoming a believer and uh, having the Spirit of God move into his heart, Luke believed that God was going to use these eyewitness accounts to testify and speak to the salvation and power found in Jesus. And Luke believed that God was going to use those stories and had called him to write them down. And that's exactly what God inspired Luke to do. And that's exactly what God's Word has done for every generation that has picked up Luke's gospel ever since. We found out from the prologue that Luke set out to compile a narrative about things that have happened. Eyewitnesses delivered them to him. He wrote an orderly account that we could have certainty, to give us certainty about what we have heard. 
Luke is so focused on telling us the whole story that his story does not begin like Matthew's or Mark's or John's. Uh, It doesn't begin with the ministry of Jesus in his late 20s or early 30s. Luke is the only account that tells us the immediate backstory to Jesus, detailing his childhood, his birth. But what really set Luke's story apart and what really sets the tone for Luke's gospel is it actually begins about a year and a half before Jesus is born. And it actually does a lot to call back to and draw connective lines to the last word from God received by the prophet Malachi around 430 B.C. So over 400 years before this, God had been silent. There was a time when Israel was exiled and they came back into the land. And for some 450 years before Jesus was born, uh, around that time, they rebuilt the temple and they reestablished the land. And a trio of prophets rose up and promised that God would return as He once had been in their presence. They would see those days again. But since that time, God had been completely silent. During the period, the Jews had rebuilt the temple, but God's Spirit and His presence had not returned. And as they hoped, even as they believed He would, during this period, Jerusalem was overran and tossed from Greeks to Romans. And the temple was a laughingstock from the pagan overlords. Because there was not only no presence of God in the temple, there was no image of God in the temple. And the Romans came in, and the Greeks came in, and the pagans came in, and they thought, you can't even feel this God. You can't even see this God. What sort of God is that? Where's the proof that there really is a God in Israel? And it was declared that the the Jewish God, Yahweh, was no more. You could not feel, you could not see, so He must not exist. And the Jews were absolutely deflated. And when Rome installed a new king, it was insult to injury. Herod the Great, as he called himself, was neither great nor Jewish nor a believer. But he made the Jews an offer that they could not refuse. He wanted to be adored as the greatest ever to rule in Israel. He wanted to rival or surpass even Solomon in the hearts and minds of the people. And seeing how disgusted they were about their temple's condition, seeing how it was so inglorious compared to what it once was, he offered to renovate it. He offered to pump millions into it to make it a spectacle again, overlaying it with marble and gold, giving it pomp and wonder it was lacking. He added on to the complex. He built many additional buildings. And the site of the Temple Mount was so marvelous, it would send chills up your spine. So they thought, surely God's presence can't resist such a magnificent dwelling place. If God's ever going to come back to our country, if He's ever going to return, it will be into this magnificent, glorious, impeccable dwelling place. And it's into that place of hope and even desperation that Luke's story provides us an entrance. Luke begins the story uh, by telling us it was the days of Herod the king. It was in his temple that a small remnant of believers and faithful priests still served daily, wondering would God's Spirit ever return? Luke had gotten a clear understanding of the mood and the heart of the Jews around this time. He feels so confident that his story speaks to and solves this tension and answers this question. He tackles it head on. Luke's story begins with an angel appearing to a priest 
in the temple. And then an angel appears to a young girl up the road, announcing that God was about to start a new chapter in Israel's history, in the world's history. He wasn't going to abide by their tradition or by their expectations, but He made it clear to them that His presence was indeed returning, and for the first time, alert, get everybody, get everybody's attention, for the first time ever, God would become visible. And every Jew, all of them, their ears perked up because if this is true, we have been waiting on this. Every religion has their idols. Every religion has a picture of their God. So if our God's actually, finally, once and for all, going to become visible, we cannot wait. So not only would God be with them, but they could see Him. And the, the angel told even more details. That it would not just be God in spirit, but it would be God in skin, God made flesh. God was going to send a messenger to prepare the way for His own Son. God made flesh, born of a woman, but conceived by and sent for heaven's power. So Luke's story tells us about the birth of a boy named John, the messenger. And the birth of a boy named Jesus. So-called the Messiah. And it was Jesus' mother, Mary, who was greedy with those famous words, highly favored, blessed among women, anointed. Her conception would be from the Holy Spirit. Jesus' birth would signify a brand new way of encountering and engaging with God. Again, we cannot miss how Luke frames the story with the temple. So often the references of the old model where God lived in the temple, but in this new model, in this new way, God was not returning to a holy place behind a veil in a temple. In this new way, within was greater than with. Oh, you've heard that God has been with you, but this new way, this brand new movement, God is going to be within The hearts. This is not going to be like Moses on the mountain. This isn't going to be like Solomon in the temple. This isn't Elijah on the mountain where they saw the wonder and the spectacle and the fire and the glory and the cloud. It's better than that. It's not just beside. It's not just with. It's within. It's inside. It's not going to be based on how you feel. It's going to be based on what you believe, faith, and God's promise unto you. Even better, God was going to reintroduce Himself and establish a dynamic, eternal relationship, which would be greater than an isolated, limited experience. I know y'all love the services in the temple, but what I'm bringing to you is better than that. It's a dynamic, it's an eternal relationship where everybody is a temple. Where every body, every believer is a dwelling place for the Spirit and presence of God. And Luke holds up Jesus as the one who's going to make this way possible. As the only one. Not just an option, but the only option. So if, we're, we, if this is true, then we got to perk our ears up. we got to focus in, right? Because if He's the only way to this new model, if He's the only avenue to the presence of God, We ought to pay attention, and the ancient world paid close attention. Luke doesn't just tell us that Jesus is the Savior, but he shows us how Jesus would save. He would save us by bringing God's presence to us, by bringing us into a relationship with God. 
But what would the terms of service be? And how do we, the reader, encounter Jesus? Thankfully, Luke's not done. He's just getting started, actually. In Luke's account of Jesus' birth, we're clued into all the key people in the story. Uh, what they were doing, where they were. We're told that Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem because of a Roman census. And of course, Mary, his fiance, is traveling with him. She's great with child, by the way. And a donkey is not the preferred choice of travel for anyone who is nine months pregnant. But Mary, nonetheless, went with her husband-to-be. We're told about an innkeeper who just couldn't make any more room for them. But Luke's story features some very obscure characters. And again, this is normally a Christmas story, but I want to drop in in the middle of the story and let him tell us about these two other categories that are in this birth narrative. Jump in at Luke chapter 2, verse number 8. And we meet these two groups. You may think it's just one, but there's actually two here. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. So Luke just has to tell us that in this beginning, in this day when Jesus was about to be born, the Messiah, there's some important figures that are hanging around the the area. There's some shepherds and there's some lambs. Now shepherds in Bethlehem would have been so close to Jerusalem, just 20 miles. And shepherds in this area would have been responsible for raising sheep that were used for the sacrificial system at the temple, for the big festivals, for any special occasion. And sacrifices. So according to Luke's sources, the angel told the shepherds that night that they were not raising the future saviors of Israel, but that the new savior had just been born. Of course, we know this so well, but the angel says to them in verse 9, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And you know how you know why I think they believed the all people part? They were shepherds. They were not considered to be important people. They were not priests. They were not Levites. They were not Sadducees or Pharisees. They were not religious people. They were smelly shepherds that were unclean constantly because they were there with the flock. And more likely than not, they dealt with sheep that were turned away than those that were accepted. Shepherds were the bottom pillar of society. No one said, oh, I want to be a shepherd when I grow up. You became a shepherd when nobody else offered you something better. So the angel says, this is going to be for all people, including you people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, who is the Messiah. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in a feeding trough. So, guys, y'all are familiar with barns, aren't you? Y'all are familiar with stables and feeding troughs. (laughs) You'll feel right at home. Because you'll find a baby laying in a place that normally you would lead your lambs to. And the angels began to appear in a multitude of believers, a heavenly host, praising God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards, plural, all men, all people. But I'm sure the shepherds thought, how could a, how could a baby do what only lambs can do? The story goes on, and Luke takes us back to the temple. This time for the baby's dedication to God. 
Jump down to verse 22, and we're told that just a few short weeks later, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy or set apart to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In the story, Mary and Joseph offer a sacrifice as it was the custom, but the scripture says they offer two pigeons. But if you read Leviticus, the pigeons were not the first option. The preferable choice was a lamb. But they were poor. And they could not afford a lamb. So they went with the pigeons. Lambs were expensive, and if you were a poor family, you, were, you had to save up for lambs. And all the offerings, all the sacrifices throughout the year, there were alternatives allowed to be given to the altar besides lambs for those families that could not afford. But there was one festival every year that did not allow for substitutes whatsoever. There was one festival for which those shepherds were raising as many lambs as they could. Because Passover required a lamb. And every year, every Jewish family would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and provide a lamb. Exodus made this commandment that would be a tradition for years to come. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he or in his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you, uh, what each of you can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. So if you were a small family or a poor family, you could group together with neighbors and relatives and you could all get in the caravan and go down together and make a purchase with all of your money combined because, again, lands were expensive. But notice something in that, in that scripture. It starts out by referring to a lamb. Then it refers to the lamb. And then your lamb because it becomes personal. Your lamb has to be a year old, a male, without blemish. Without blemish. And as Luke's story continues, he highlights one specific trip that they made about 12 years later. Drop down to verse number 41. And all this will carry with it the themes that we've talked about. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. So Jesus' family seemed to travel in a very large caravan from what we read later. Perhaps with relatives from Nazareth or just neighbors. Maybe they all came down together, stayed together, celebrated together, and they shared a lamb as custom would allow. Now we have to talk about this because it's so lost on us, but Passover was such a big deal for the Jewish people. It still is, but in the temple days, it was the highest and the holiest of all days. Passover was a celebration of their beginning as a nation and of their salvation from bondage from the Exodus story. 
It never got old, and the people never grew weary of traveling to Jerusalem for this annual feast. You saved whatever you had to save. You did whatever you had to do because the excitement in the air was so electric as people began to make their way to the holy city. The journey through the hill country of Judea to the valley between Mount Zion and Mount Acre was a way for each Jew to identify with their ancestors that journeyed through the wilderness before looking for the promised land. As they followed along the Jordan River, the splendor of milk and honey beamed over the horizon. Jerusalem stood out tall and brilliant compared to any other Israeli city, and most historians say that it was uncontested by even the Roman cities of the ancient world. The combination of architecture and nature and the sacred made it unrivaled. No matter which direction you came from, Tradition was that you would sing one of the Psalms of the Ascent, which were songs that, as the, as the name suggests, you would sing as you ascended the mountains, ascended Mount Zion, ascended Mount Acre, as you would then descend into the valley between where Jerusalem was founded. There's a group of psalms from 120 to 136 that they would choose from. And these are like road trip songs that you might would listen to on your way to a vacation resort. A psalm that I'm sure that they often sang was from 121 that you're all familiar with. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So as they traveled in the valley paths of Hinnom and Kidron and Jehoshaphat, when they came to the place where you could see Jerusalem, you would be stunned. You would simply say, Wow, as you gazed at the over 200-acre complex. Just a snapshot of what it may have looked like back in the ancient world with the temple being the pristine epicenter of the city, but with the city so packed with, with awesome architecture. People from the, from the around surrounding areas had never seen anything like it and haven't seen anything. There hasn't been anything since in the world that rivals it. The city rested on a, in a valley compared to the mountains around it. But it actually was built on Mount Moriah, a smaller mountain than Zion and Acre on both sides. With the temple being the highest place in the city, and the Mount of Olives was the backdrop for the city. And when the sun shined down on that marble golden temple, glistening and meshing with the vibrant green of Olivet, surrounded by the lantern-lit walls, filled with palaces and state-of-the-art living quarters. It was like a city engulfed in glory. And when hundreds of thousands of people gathered for Passover, their voices would crescendo together to create a valley vortex so powerful that when you could hear the hymns of praise and chants of worship from miles away, people that are on record as to what it sounded like said it sounded like heaven. And the Jews believed that heaven would one day exist within those walls. One of the songs that would have been sang as they gathered into the city for Passover, Psalms 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates. Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. So they sang about how awesome the city was. It was so respected, so revered, so marveled at. There would have been a lot of preliminary festivities in the city that week. 
The city spent months preparing for this week. So much was put into keeping the city clean. The streets swept. The vendors and stores overstocked. And guest rooms top-notch condition. People would spend their evenings on the flat rooftops of the residential buildings with fires lit, bands playing, and families basking the stars, remembering God's promises. But the main event was obviously Thursday evening when each family or representative from the family would come to the temple with their lamb in tow. There was a traditional song, a liturgy, a group of songs that were sang as the people assembled into the city streets. Uh, Psalms 113 through 118 is really the entirety of the song that they sang as they gathered together to, uh, to, to have the service that was called the Howl. The Howl, which is where we get the word Hallelujah from, because Halla means praise, and Yah is shorthand for Yahweh, which is praise the Lord. So as they would come together, they would prepare their hearts for worship. The men of the family, accompanied by their sons, would make way, while the rest of the family stayed back on the rooftop ends and watched the temple as the fire and smoke began to rise. The aroma of the sacrifices swept by. The big opening ceremony would close with Psalms 118. The Lord is God. He has made His light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Because like the Exodus generation, this generation was to God's people. The line would go for miles extending out of the city gates as each man would wait at the altar of the temple courtyard where each household rep would join the priest. The priest would examine the lamb and hand the man a knife and would slit the lamb's throat, being careful not to be too rough as to break any bones. Blood was drained into a silver bowl and each man was given the bowl to wait in line as every lamb was slain. At the end of every sacrifice, each ball would then be passed toward the altar where they would combine them into a larger trough that would then be sprinkled on the altar for the Passover sacrifice. And because of the blood of the Lamb, God would pass over Israel's sins once more. The priest would roast each lamb and send a portion with each household as they could eat privately in the Seder meal that night. Now, the Seder meal was almost like a worship service around the table with your family. There was liturgy that was recited by different members of the family. But there was one point in the meal where a chosen son would ask the father, uh, as part of the script, the chosen son would ask the father a question that would prompt him to tell the Passover story. Exodus says it like this. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? So that was a part of the script. They would, one would say, what do you mean by this father? The father would say, You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. So it was integral that the sons of the family be about their father's business, be interested and invested in the covenant of Israel. Jesus had faithfully assumed this role year after year, no doubt sharing it with his brothers James and Jude, modeling for them what a good son of the covenant ought to be, how, how one ought to be involved in worship, in tradition. But here's something that we draw out of Jesus' 12th trip to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Because something was different about the boy this time. You see, 
when a Jewish boy reaches age 13, whether he celebrates Passover or not, he is bound to live by the commandments of the Torah. When you turn 13, you are obligated to take personal responsibility for your faults, for your sins. And this would be Jesus' final year of unaccountability towards the law. This was the last time Jesus could just be a kid, could just be passive towards all of this. Of course, he was just a boy. Kids weren't expected to be all in. They were given plenty of passes. Things didn't get serious until their bar mitzvah. Kids were allowed to be kids. Their involvement, of course, was meant to plant these seeds of faith. But Jesus was different. He always seemed so intense during this week and these celebrations. He would stand beside Joseph as they brought the lamb with a year's worth of money, year's worth of savings. He would somberly and soberly make way beside Joseph to the temple when they waited in line to have their sacrifice examined. They would lift it up on the table and the priest would check for spot or blemish. Perhaps echoing the days of Abraham and Isaac, Joseph maybe would ask Jesus if he wanted to help with the sacrifice. Maybe the boy Jesus held the knife in hand and laid it on the lamb. And with just the slightest amount of pressure, quickly and swiftly, following its neck. I wonder if Jesus, as the blood began to drain, I wonder if he ever called to mind, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you. And as the boy Jesus, year after year, and this year especially, as he saw the blood begin to drain, I wonder if he thought, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Yes, Jesus was always so different than the rest of the kids. No one could figure out why. His mother thought something was different. But on Jesus' 12th Passover, he was a little more intense, a little more focused, a little more serious, a little more somber. And I'm sure one of his older relatives or neighbors must have joked with him, Jesus, this is your last year being free from the guilt and the burden of the law. Enjoy it while it lasts. But alas, Jesus remains so devoted, almost invested in the lambs. After the week-long feast was over, the Nazarene clan packed up their caravan and began moving out. The city still rang with glee and wonder, but with a strong uh, smell of the roasted lambs. As Jesus' parents made sure all the kids were ready to go, they could not find Jesus. But the caravan was large and his family was scattered. He always had his nose stuck in a book, the Torah or the Psalms. So they assumed he was riding along with someone, so that did not faze them. Of course, Jesus is safe and sound. Until after a day's journey out of town, they stopped for a rest and no one could find Jesus. So they made haste to return into Jerusalem. And after another day of search, of traveling and another day of searching, they finally found him in the most peculiar of places in the temple near the Sanhedrin Terrace where all the teachers and all the scribes would gather for the daily lessons and the daily lectures from God's Word. And there the boy was listening. And, and after a while of listening, he started asking questions. And then after a while of asking questions, he started answering questions. And everyone marveled at the boy. Who is this strange Galilean child, this wonder kid, this brilliant and charming, serious and enlightening, intimidating boy? 
Verse 48 says that his parents found him. They were amazed. And his mother said, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Are you surprised to find me here? Are, are you really surprised that I'm in my father's house doing my father's bidding? And I'm sure somebody would have said to Jesus, Your father? You mean Joseph? What's he got to do with the temple? He's a carpenter. And maybe Jesus left it ambiguous. But clearly Jesus was referring to God. The word business is implied, but literally the text says, I must be doing the things of God. I've got to be doing what God's purpose is. He would have made notion of the temple suggesting that he had work to do here. But Jesus was a 12-year-old boy. He was not a priest or a Levite. It never added up. He would never find his way back there except for Passover every year. And calling God his father, nobody did that. And for a child to do it would suggest they were just immature and hadn't figured out the formalities and the grandeur you must refer to God with. Of course, Jesus was just 12 Maybe he just didn't understand the gravity and the sacredness of it all yet. But little did they know, he absolutely did. Jesus, unlike any other, knew and felt the weight of it all. Yet he also had a sense of ease and comfort and belonging that nobody else did. These two things normally don't go together and definitely don't go together in religion. But Jesus wasn't at the temple out of religious duty. He was there because He had a relationship with His Father. And He knew that His time was coming. He knew that one day, 20 or so years later, on the eve of the Passover, when all the lambs were being slain, he would be betrayed. And the next morning, he would be sentenced to die on a cross just outside the gate, just over the hill, on the barren lands, on the bad lands of Judea, on a mountain called the Skull. Jesus knew things were going to be different for him very soon. And Jesus knew it wasn't just because he, he wasn't unaccountable. As a 12-year-old, unlike any of the others, he wasn't waiting to feel the burden of the law and the guilt of sin. He had had that on his shoulders since the day he was born because that's why he came. Galatians 4, Paul tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, not becoming under the law at age 13. He was born with the weight of the law on His shoulders because He could handle it. And we couldn't. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might be adopted, so that He might share with us this status, this place He had with His Father, so that we might all could refer to God as our Father as well. It was the burden that compelled Him to always be about His Father's business. He says in verse 49, I must, I must. This is a divine obligation. I've got a sense of all on my heart. I must be about my Father's business. And He repeats this phrase many times throughout His ministry. 
When he begins his ministry, when he walks away from Nazareth and they throw stuff at him and they try to kill him because he spoke up at the synagogue and he, he betrayed his family because he chose to walk away to something new. Jesus told them on that day, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I've got to do this. This is why I was sent. You might understand it right now, but I must. I have a divine necessity. You might wonder, you know, what do you have that we don't have? Or what do you know that we don't know? I am God's Son. I am God incarnate. I am God made flesh. And I want to share this role, this mantle, this status, this relationship. I want you to be God's child too. And of course, there's just one Messiah. But when I die on a cross, I'm going to share my spirit with you. And you can too be a child of God. God. And you don't get it. And I know it doesn't make any sense. But wait until it happens because it will. You'll see it for yourself. He He would say three times to his followers, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and priests and scribes and be killed. I've got to do this. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow for the prophet cannot perish away from Jerusalem because the Lamb has to be slain on the Passover. I must, I must, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Because after all, Passover required a spotless lamb slain and poured out. And Jesus' death wouldn't just be for Israel fleeing from Egypt or Rome. His death would be for the world freeing us all from sin and death. And that's the message that Jesus gives His disciples when He raises from the dead. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead. And that repentance for, sin, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. And our hope, our confidence, our assurance is that the Passover Lamb was slain in our place so that God would pass over our sins. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be saved. What can wash away our sins? What can make us whole again? Nothing. Nothing but. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 1 verse 7, Paul says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Because of His blood, we have forgiveness. Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like a lamb without spot and without blemish. Revelations 1, John says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us a kingdom free and saved forever. Once and for all, not yearly. Not something you individually have to do at an altar somewhere in a fancy building, but something Jesus did for you, universally and eternally, for you, for me, for everybody. A few years later, John the Baptist was preaching. And John said, I'm washing y'all with water to show you what God can do to the outside. But there comes one mightier than me. He's going to wash you with the Holy Spirit and fill you with the fire and power of God. 
Jesus is going to wash you with His blood. Cleanse you from within. I'm washing the outside, but wait until He gets a hold of the inside. And this isn't just going to be for those who see it, for those who saw it, but for those who hear it and believe it for all who repent and all who receive it, including you. Including me. Repent means nothing else is working. Nothing else can work because nothing but the blood can and will work. When we hear and believe, when we repent and receive, the Holy Spirit moves in. And He can move into you today. He can cleanse you. He can wash you. He can enlighten and empower you with the fire of God. He cleanses us. He frees us from sin. He empowers us. He fills us with grace. And you can know this for yourself. Because when you believe it and you receive it, you will see for yourself. Because Jesus died for you. He didn't pour his blood out for nothing. But because he did, nothing but his blood, nothing but his blood will pour out God's power on you. We're going to have a song here in a minute. If you're saved, sing out with the loudest voice you got. If you're not saved, run with all the energy you've got. Because your new beginning starts now. It can start now. Your new start can be right now. The Holy Spirit is moving in your direction. You've just got to receive Him. If you need rededication, renewal, the altar is going to be open for you. But for the rest of you, sing out that Jesus' blood is enough for me and for you. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the blood that washes away our sins. Nothing but the blood, but it can, it can, and it will, and it does make us whole again. And if anybody in this house today says they're not whole, and they're lost, and they're broken, and they need something from you today, what they need is the blood of Jesus to wash them. What they need is the Spirit of God to overpower and overwhelm and fill them. God, if somebody would confess that they have never been saved, they've never put their faith in you, someone maybe that's walked away and now they're back and they need a renewal, they need a rededication, God, whatever it is, let this altar be that meeting place because on the altar of the cross, Jesus died for them. They can meet you here at this one. God, whatever else the need is, somebody that might would like to join our church, someone that would like to have a new start here, God, let this invitation be for them as well. But for the rest of us, let us worship in your spirit, one last time, in Jesus' name.